Okay, are you recording? G'day guys, Howie here. Welcome along to the Howie Games, an episode featuring a gentleman by the name of Rob Marshall. Now, Rob has packed a lot into his life. There's a lot of life lessons in there. You are going to learn a lot, I reckon, from hearing what Rob's got to say. Thankfully, Rob is still with us. He describes in detail an incident at a roundabout in a car in Western Australia not too long ago that is quite unbelievable. Thankfully, Rob is still with us to tell that tale. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Now, Rob has still got a lot on his plate. We mentioned a lot of his business involvement. There's more businesses that he is currently involved with today that he just wanted to give a shout out to, especially to all the people involved because he absolutely treasures everything they do. The crew from Ebiz Solutions, which Rob started with his brother Don back in 1996, it was named WA Micro Small Business of the Year in 2007 and an inaugural Australian MYOB Partner of the Year in 2011. A really nice little barber shop in Australind Men's Hair Studio. Rob with his wife Jackie and co-partners Robin and Richard Duke, who are sensational. Rob's a co-director of Freedom Connect Bookkeeping with some wonderful partners, Amanda Linton in South Australia, Leanne Berry in New South Wales and Margie Whitfield in Queensland. It's an Australia-wide bookkeeping and training company. He's also a director of the Australian Institute of Certified Bookkeepers and right in his hitting zone, his real passion, is the current chairman of the WACA WA Country Cricket Board, working alongside a phenomenal board right across regional WA from the Pilbara all the way out into the wheat belt and down to the deep south of WA. And there are some incredible, incredible people involved there, including Steve Philippe, and Andrew Hayes. So g'day to all those people. You're about to now hear the wonderful, wonderful story of Rob Marshall. Enjoy. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me we want to reach Mount Zion. Hey Rob, how are you? Good, Howie. Great to have this opportunity, mate. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, disappointed with the footy yesterday. You're a big Eagles man, I'm a big Hawks man. You enjoy your trip to the footy yesterday? Yes, we got the full experience. We got the <laughs> we got the rain, we got the wind, we got the cold, and we got the wind. So, yeah, um, yeah no, great game of footy. Uh, if anything, probably with a minute to go, despite my West Coast Eagles bent, I thought a tie might have been the right result. It looked like it there. It for was a while, just didn't it? a, yeah, it was a, a really good game of footy. All credit to the Hawks because they uh, clearly are undermanned. <coughs> and um, yeah. Anyway, let's not dwell on the footy. Let's talk about you. Rather <laughs> I know you're than a big Hawks fan, than mate. The Mighty Hawks. Yeah. I am. Um, we normally start this, and there's so much to get through with you, which I'm really looking forward to, Rob. But we normally start this, and some people can go back one generation, some can go back 15 generations. How far back can you go in your family's history? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because we're only recently we've sort of signed up for one of another words for a little bit of uh, one of those online apps that can take you back. But right. uh, um, on my dad's side, not not very far. Um, my dad's, my great-grandparents uh, on my dad's side died be- well before I was alive. In fact, died when my dad was only six. Right. I think his di- mum died and 
dad died when he was 12, so he's from a family of 12. Wow. Uh, East Broom Hill, which is out in the wheat belt of WA, and uh, yeah, wrote, wrote a book uh, called Yes, There Is Life Besides Cricket, and uh, he details that story well for us, for our, you know, for our legacy, which is is great. So, who looked after him uh, when they were young? Mm, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing story. I mean, we're at, they're out in as far out in the sticks as you can possibly imagine. In fact, that's all they did was clear land. Mm. Um, this is pre World War Two. Um, yeah, basically, an auntie and a, um, an uncle brought them up to a certain degree, and then in 1937, I think it was. Um, even they died, so his brothers and sisters just wow. co- coexisted. Um, yeah, crazy days back then, Howie. I mean, Dad told me about how when his dad died, he, he barely remembers his mum dying, but he remembers his dad dying because he was 12 at the time. One of his uh, brothers in the middle of the night just nudged him and said, Dad's died, and Jeez. he was like in the bed next to him. I mean, there's, there's 13 of them in a two-bedroom mud hut, and yeah, he said he cried a little bit and then went back to sleep. And then the next morning they come and took his dad away, you know. So yeah, really, really tough. There wasn't any tougher than what those guys went through out in the wheat belt and those sort of areas back in the 20s and 30s. No. It was just tough times. And yet you read his book and he just calls it the best of times. You know, no TV, no radio, no internet, none of that sort of stuff. So you had to make life and uh, it was spent, you know, shooting kangaroos and chasing rabbits and wow. stuff like that. So, yeah. It was, so, um, so that's on your father's side. What about on your mum's side? What's oh, your dad's name? Um, Arthur Marshall. Arthur, yeah, right. yeah. And uh, on your mum's side? On mum's side, yeah. We actually, I stumbled across even to the um, surprise of, of all that side. I, I don't know why, but we shifted house about... Uh, about 13 years ago and in the cleanup, I found a timeline that took mum's side back to the 1500s in wow. England yeah that's as far back as anyone I've yeah. talked to yeah. that's good it was ama- it's amazing um, to look back on the timeline and you know back then you got names that were just a single name not even two names sort mm-hmm. of thing so m- my mum's side was the Ramsey family and not Gordon, no. right. <laughs> spelt differently. Right. Um, and my grandfather came out of the area called Poplar, which is well, quite well known now because of Call the Midwife, uh-huh. that show, yep. um, that area. And if you watch that show, well, as my wife and I do from time to time, Jackie loves it. Um, that gives an insight. He was a chimney sweep as a kid, so spent hmm. his whole life, you know, they, they were as poor as you can possibly get as well. So not, not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of riches in the background as far as uh, you know the the money side goes. There was so no how, uh, major how, inheritance. How did they end up how, on your mother on your maternal side? How yep. did they end up in Australia? At what generation? Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm a bit bit vague on that side of it. My my um my um my father my grandfather was a second um grandfather if you know what i mean okay. so my mum's mum married twice mm-hmm. her first husband uh got um uh taken off the rocks down in uh i think around the um yelling up region fishing, fishing. fishing. yeah Gee. he actually um uh, went in after a mate who got swept in got oh. the mate out and he didn't make it 
So, so it was a second marriage for my my nana, as we called her, and um, yeah. So, tracing it as I'm sure it is for many people is it gets a little bit yeah, sort of blurry of if there's second marriages and stuff like that. So, if anything, I've probably invested more time in in understanding dad's side. Yep. You know, and obviously the martial name. Um, you tend to probably go in that direction, but yeah, mum has an amazing background as well. So, so tell yeah. me about your father yeah. as a fella. Tell me about your dad. Yeah, he he's he was bigger than life itself. Just <clears throat> you know, in the uh, area where we grow, um, the town where we grew up in Western Australia, Harvey, he's just legendary. Basically, got the local grandstand named named after him. Has he? Um, yeah. Many a many a many a person, many a top line cricketer has told me he probably could have gone all the way. Wow. He was that good as a cricketer, but just chose to he put family and business in front of cricket. Um, but he was some cricketer. You read his records, it's just phenomenal. Um He battled bowl. Both. And just you know, I've read of a game he played at Country Week recently where he made a hundred and then went and bowled the, the opposition out twice. Took uh, fifteen wickets in the match, so fifteen wickets and a ton in one match. Not bad for That's a, a fair day's yeah, it's a fair work. day's work. Yeah, and I can remember he was. <coughs> I'm the youngest in our family. I can remember my brother Don saying when he first came on the cricket scene and was playing with Dad, they'd be playing some game somewhere and it's hot and they want to get going and. They would just beg Dad to come on to bowl because he would just clean them up, and that's you know. So they knew that was game over as soon as okay. Dad came on to bowl. So, um, yeah, he he amazing life. One of the most. He is clearly the biggest influence on my life um, by a long way. In every way, Howie. In every way. Um, we went through some amazing times in the latter part of his life in business together and I played a little bit of cricket with him before he retired. He played till he was 66, still has the club record at the Harvey Cricket Club, 666 games. 666 yeah, games? Yeah. So I, and maybe this is a challenge for the, for who ends up listening to this, if anyone listens. Right. But, uh, I, I, we'd love to throw the challenge around Australia. So Dad at the Harvey Cricket Club... Dad played 666 games. He's the record holder. My brother Don is second on the list. So 125-year-old club with 634 games. I played 515, and my brother David played 490. So, so you've got about 2,000 between you. Yeah, we're kind of tempted to go on a sports talk or something right. and throw the challenge out there. Is there one generation of family that's played that many games of cricket for one cricket club? So so if you, if you could say... <coughs> And he was obviously a great man who's had a massive influence on you. If you could say you took one thing from your father, yep. looking back, what would it be? His very last words to me. Which were? Which were, I, and we may get into this at some stage, but we had been through the best of times and the really worst of times. Which we will get to. Yeah. Um, and Dad had seen it all. Um lived through the worst horrors that any Australian went through pretty much in World War Two, in New Guinea and Timor. Um, he served in New Guinea, didn't he? Yeah, both. Uh, well, initially in Timor, which was the worst. We'll get mm. to that because I'd love to tell that part of the story, the Timor side, mm. that New Guinea gets all the all the, the mention these days and Timor is the forgotten war, basically. Um, but um, he, he had some things that clearly... 
at the right at the end, we knew he was getting close to dying. He'd been sick for a while. He's 92. This is back in 2013. And on it was Remembrance Day, um, 2013, and he was in Harvey Hospital. I live in Australin, which is about half an hour away. And for whatever reason, something in my head said, go down and see Dad tonight. We had no indication that he was going to die the next day. Um, and I went down to... I just said to my wife, I just want to go down and honour an old soldier on Remembrance Day. Mm. You know, I'd only seen him a couple of days before. Got down there. As I walked in, my brother Don was walking out. He said, oh, what are you doing here? Um, you know, because I'd only come down once a weekend. And he would. He said, look, just been in with Dad and he's not really with it. He's pretty incoherent. I think you've wasted your trip. I said, no, it's cool. I just want to go and sit with him. Seriously, Howie, I walked in. It was two seconds after I spoke to Don. I walked in and, and Dad sat up and went, oh, hi, Rob, like this. And we had the most coherent, hmm. probably two-hour talk that I'd had in years with Dad. And we shared stuff that I won't share on this podcast. It, it's so close to my heart. And just as I was about to leave, so I never spoke another word to Dad because um, he died the next day, but... I said to him, Dad, you know, across an amazing life, would you know, would you do anything different? And I, and I, to my eternal um, regret, I was kind of baiting him because I knew there were a couple of things that we'd done in business that went really bad. And he just looked up at me. This ninety-two, I'm getting emotional now. Ninety-two-year-old beautiful man who'd been through it all, and he just, with a twinkle in his eye, said, "I'd do it all the same, all over again. <laughs> I wouldn't change a thing." And I just reflect on that every day, Howie. Every single day of my life, I think, how good will it be to get to our life and go, we don't regret anything. You know, we are moving on to the next and we, we're we satisfied that we gave it a red-hot go and we did everything we could. Clearly, there were things that we did that didn't work out, mm. but he didn't see those as regrets. My dad ended up, you know, doing pretty well in business and, you know, financially was okay, but he never once did it anything for money not once and he was the most generous man i know so that that sits that sits very strongly in my heart and i reflect on that a lot mm. because he um i think in that moment he he also said something else to me that will stay in my heart forever um that i, I probably won't share on in, in this forum but i think he knew that he was going to die the next day and he just he he left a legacy that you cannot put a put a, a bounty on or whatever you want to call it. You just cannot quantify that legacy because it's 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 in my heart every day and my soul. You mentioned Timor. Yeah. Often I find with um, people that have people that served in the war, close ones. There's often not much discussed about it. There's mm. not much asked. It wasn't mm. wanted to be talked about. But you obviously know a little bit about what went on. Yeah, dad, dad wouldn't talk about it openly, but no. when pushed, he would talk about it, and then he wrote about it in his book yep. that he wrote. Um, it, it's you read it; it's you know, six years of his life that were were absolutely you know. I can't imagine it. I don't. don't I can't speak for you, but none of us uh, in our modern age could imagine no. what those guys went through. Um, he kind he talks about it in almost a merry way, and yet, so he was. Um, um, became part of what was is called or was called the Second Second Commandos, which effectively now became the forefathers of what we know as the SAS, 
recruited all out of Western Australia, predominantly out of Western Australia, trained under lethal conditions here in Victoria, down in Wilson Promontory, mm. I think, um, for nine weeks and basically sent off to war. And they landed in Timor. The Japanese had bombed Port Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor and uh, they, so they knew that things were happening. Um, went up into the mountains um, to set up and basically from there um, the Japanese came through and smashed Singapore and landed in Timor in Dili. Um, 270 men in Dad's um, squadron. Um, had no idea the Japanese had landed. Uh, I'll tell one very short story that just, you know, what do you call it, sliding doors. Mm. So they're up in the mountains. They About seven to 12 guys once a week could go down on a truck down to Dilly and have a bit of R&R while they stocked up on food. Dad's group was, um, Dad's 12 that he patrolled with were, were supposed to go down on this particular day. And his captain said, no, no, this group over here have been working hard and harder than you blokes. So they get the gig. They hopped on this um, truck, drove down to Dilly, had no idea that the night before the Japanese had landed mm. and they ambushed the truck and bayoneted a lot of them. Uh, one guy survived to tell the story. They they lined him up in, in a ditch, shot him and bayoneted him. And this guy called Keith Hayes, who ironically turned out to be the one of the last ones to survive, only died recently, so he could tell the whole story. So Dad was supposed to be on that truck, sliding doors. Um, from there, 270 men. This is a, one of the, the, the best-kept secrets in Australian war history. It's just not told enough, Howie. 270 men kept 10,000 Japanese at bay for another 12 months with Australia thinking they were all dead. Mm. So they just stayed in the mountains, got in good with the Timorese um, native folk and basically just caused havoc and caused the Japanese to be jumping at shadows for 12 months until finally there's a, a piece of uh, history in the in the Canberra War Museum called Winnie the War Winner. Um, check it out if you ever go. They cobbled together out of nothing a radio and sent a message back to Australia to say, hey, guys, uh, we're actually still alive. Wow. Didn't get believed for months. They had to keep, in the end, they went through some processes of naming a, the captain's wife's middle name or something and finally convinced Darwin that that was actually them. They thought it was the Japanese playing games. Hmm. And 12 months in, they basically rescued them off Timor, fully, just about fully intact. They, they lost a few men along the way and Dad's documented those stories where again he just I don't know the words charmed he, he he was he was looked after you know so many scraps he got out of that others didn't so sliding doors Howie yeah he then went on to they came home they got all of three weeks leave I think it was and then they <coughs> shipped him off to New Guinea <coughs> and he spent the next three to four years in New Guinea and that was again doing the same caper hiding in the mountains causing havoc this is after Kokoda, which was effectively a retreat. They stayed on. And, uh, yeah, he basically, you know, I just I just marvel at him and his era of men. I just can't speak highly enough about them, and, and Dad was one of them. So. It's great that you're putting this down because the obvious thing here will be, well, it will be great to hear this from your father. Yeah. Imagine having yep. the record of your father yep. to do this. So... I think we've got a pretty good grasp on Arthur. Yep. 
your mum's name? Yep, Audrey. Audrey. Yeah. yeah. What did you take from your mum? <sighs> Again, tough, tough lady, although the most sweetest petite lady you'll ever meet. Mm. Just gorgeous. Um, died a couple of years ago, um, or about 18 months ago, of one of the rarest diseases known to man. Uh, I'll pick up on that in a minute. But, um, yeah, so mum lived through the, the 1930s, um, you know, in the war years uh, in Harvey. Um, came out the other side, um, met dad. Dad came off the boat in 1946, I think it was, and went to Harvey for a holiday. Now, you know, that'd be like saying you, I don't know, it's just not the sort of place you say you're going for a holiday, you know. (laughs) So uh, rocked up there, saw mum uh, working as a checkout chick. Checked her out. Didn't have a cent to his name, queued up. The story goes there was about 14 people queued behind him while he he flirted with mum (laughs) and some wag at the end yelled out, mate, you either buy something or you marry her. (laughs) So he married her. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. Um, And they built a house in 1949 that we just sold about three months ago. So (laughs) we we all got brought up in that house. So what's that, 70 years, um, same house we all grew up in, amazing. Um, mum was just dad went on to have the most amazing business career and, and heavily involved in cricket and stuff like that and mum brought us all up and especially my oldest sister and my oldest brother you know at times dad was never home for months on, on hand while he built his um, his uh, super spreading business um, and yeah she just she just you know mum mum was just somebody that you just can't bottle a heart like hers she just was so loving so so um, gentle so amazingly um uh what's the word i'm trying to think of you know her love for us as kids just knew no bounds she just doted on us all um and we desperately miss her she i say i said this at in her eulogy at her um funeral um 18 months ago dad dad has a reputation in west western australia for being the the businessman he was but mum was the engine room hmm. she she was the one who actually did the, dad dad had all the concepts he did all the the marketing all that sort of stuff but mum was the one who kept driving it in the back office you might say and yeah i owe a lot to mum basically what i do for a living now started with mum teaching me bookkeeping when i was eight years of age and that's where I, I guess, got my passion, bizarrely, as a guy for bookkeeping and uh, been there, made a career out of it. Which we'll get to. So when were you born? I was born in 1967. 1967. Yeah. Where did you fit into the family? I'm long way last. Right. So I was the, the baby of the family. My, my sister Terry um, and my brother Don came along fairly early in the piece after mum and dad got married. Mm-hmm. And my sister Jill and, and my other brother David, sort of around the midway, I was seven years young. I am still seven years younger than my brother David. So, yeah, most of the, most of the siblings had cleared the household pretty much by the time I become aware, if what, you could say what, that. Becoming aware, it's a good point. What's the first thing you can remember in your life? Um, first thing I remember, first thing I remember, I remember a... Um, a horrific moment when um, my dad used to prepare the local turf pitch in Harvey 
and he had one of those really old Shire type rollers that didn't had a guard on one side. Health and safety would just have mm. a field day. <laughs> had a guard on one of the big solid concrete wheels, but the other one didn't. And um, Dad told me I must have been all of maybe three or four. Come on, you're going to come sit on the roller with me. I somehow missed the memo about sitting on the side that had the guard and I sat on the side that didn't and I went down behind the roller. And you don't pull those things up in a hurry, but somehow Dad managed to pull it up before he completely flattened me. Um, So that that sticks in the memory, that one. So sliding doors there, I guess. Um, Yeah, so uh, beyond that, it was was just (laughs) an idyllic life. Was it? You know, oh. Growing up in a place like Harvey is just incredible. It's a citrus and dairy town, uh, rural town, uh, about an hour and a half out of Bunbury. Uh, sorry, hour and a half out of Perth, just inland of the coast. Um, and, yeah, just amazing place to grow up. Streets full of kids, cricket, football, you name it. Um, it was just it was, I can't think of a better place to grow up. I love coming to Melbourne now. I love mm. coming to cities and stuff like that, but I'm glad I grew up in a country town because it taught me so much. It's a very heavy Italian community in Harvey. So they, they um, amazing people, the Italians, you know, such resilience. You know, they were put in jail. They were put in, there was a prison developed in, in Harvey during the, the wars. Mm. And so they were interned in prison and then released and just came back into the community, forgave everybody and, and, and built, built the town basically. And just there, just there, the, the thing that I, that I learnt the most growing up in Harvey from the Italian community is respect. Um, to this day, I still teach kids the same thing that I got taught by Italian mentors in Harvey, you know, that respect, respect and you make eye contact with somebody and I'm doing it now, you talk with your hands, mm. you know, to express yourself. And even though I'm not Italian, uh, I've clearly developed those traits and it's because of the community I grew up in. So where did you go to school first? Where was your first primary school? Harvey Primary School, yeah. Right. So I did all the Harvey stuff. Yep. I went to Harvey Kindergarten, Harvey Primary School, Harvey Senior High School. So What went, were you like at school? Um, it, it's an interesting question. You know, uh, a teacher told me in latter years that, you know, and this, these were his words, you know, um, when I progressed from primary school to high school, this teacher said to me uh, after I finished high school, he said, you know, we heard of this star called Rob Marshall coming through and then something didn't quite go right, did it? So in primary school, I, I did. I aced everything. I was a prefect, prefect at, in grade four, which mm. had never been done before. They only usually issued prefects in grade seven. So I was a grade prefect in four, five, six, and seven. Uh, I look back now, clearly the teachers liked me. Um, and yeah, I was on I was on top of my game uh, as far as marks and all that sort of stuff. Had an amazing group of friends. One who I sat with at the MCG yesterday, we went through kindergarten, a guy called Darren Nabs. We went through Eagles kindergarten. Fan? Ah uh, yes, come yep. Des. Yeah, sorry, mate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so we went through kindy high school, uh, primary school, high school, right through, and then we disconnected for twenty years, and then suddenly we're sitting at the at the G yesterday having tea last night. So, what, what do you think um, your teacher meant? Well, I, I it took me a while. It kind of rocked me a bit, mm, but I, I I know that, and I think this happens to a lot of boys, guys. When you so how it works in Har- in a place like Harvey is that you are very town-centric 
for primary school, the, the local high school brings together a number of outer towns. So suddenly you go from being, if you want to call it, and these, these aren't boastful words, but king of the pack to mm. suddenly being in the middle of the pack. You're not necessarily the gun anymore. Um, not suggesting I was the gun. That was other people's words. And there was a group, there was just a whole group of us who just, we were on top of our game and leadership was part of our style even as kids. You know, we, we that on my report cards, it would be just, I was looking at some recently, it would be just uh, born leader, meant to lead. Those sort of words were constantly used. And I got to high school and we mixed in with other other kids and I think I just sort of I don't know I, I don't know if I lost my confidence I did start to suffer some severe health problems with asthma and sinus issues in about year 9 and 10 and I think I just I just lost my confidence Howie I think and with that you know and I think it's a moral for leadership you know leadership very much is being on top of your game and when you're not we see it in footy we see it in mm. cricket you know we've seen what Steve Smith and those guys have gone through when when things don't quite work out even if you are a great leader you're challenged mm. and it's how you deal with the challenge and i think i probably didn't properly deal with that challenge until well after i left high school i finished high school okay you know it didn't wasn't as if i was in a shabby place or anything like that but i just i wasn't in the same place that i'd left primary school which was right on top of my game just before we leave your school years, it's often, um, and you obviously had a, had a, which you're fortunate, you had a beautiful family around you growing up. So when you've come home from a day playing cricket, being at school, etc., your beautiful mum, what was the thing that she would put on the table that would make you go, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. It's funny that question makes everybody smile because yeah. it's such a memory trigger, isn't it? It is, it is. You suddenly start smelling it again. Yeah, you start, yeah. You can feel it. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you've nailed that one. Um, yeah, look, uh, and it became a bit of a bit of a problem, actually, after we got married because um, stupidly, as a young married man, I oh. once made the comment, oh, no. can't, can't we just have what mum used oh. to cook? I know, oh, mate. Geez. I know, mate. Can't I know. I cringe now. You're better now. than that. About, You're better than that, Rob. About then, I... Yeah, I, th I think I wore an iron in the back of the head or so something. So what was it? What was the dish? Uh, uh, meat and three veg. Right. Yeah, chops, lamb chops or a good steak and three veg. My beautiful, amazing wife that you've just met. Yes. You know, when we got married, then proceeded to cook me the most amazing Asian dishes or anything that she could. She really put a lot of time and mm. effort into it. And I've come out with the, can't we just have the meat and three veg? <laughs> so uh, your, that was the what your mum had served that you can still remember. Yeah, yeah. That and the other one that will taint me for life is that mum used to iron everything, including underpants. Wow. So I did make the stupid comment <laughs> after we got married first day in I think it was when the undies just came out of the wash and were a little bit creased and like aren't you going to iron these I'm babe? surprised you're yeah. still married oh, I'm mate. surprised you're still married <laughs> oh how stupid was I it was just ignorance so that, that's the, the other thing that's obviously um which is right in my hitting zone looking at you today you got your over 50s 11 shirt on you got your your whacker notepad there which would be the West Australian <laughs> That's the whack of ground, but there's yep. obviously the country association. Yep. What was it about cricket that grabbed you? Apart yep. from the fact that you wanted to be like your dad, obviously. Yeah, I think I think that was it. I mean, him and my two brothers, older brothers, it, brilliant country cricketers. Um, they they clearly influenced me. And um, look, it's it's funny. I was reflecting last night. I probably could have ended up 
been a more successful tennis player. I was a really, really good tennis player, mm-hmm. really good tennis player. Uh, won five junior championships or something in a row in, in Harvey. But cricket just had that something, and I think it still does, no offence to Tennis Australia or whatever, but cricket just has that something mm. that grabs you <clears throat> and it just doesn't let you go. Once it's in your soul, it just won't go. And um, look, I had no doubts, you know, I've, I've reflected on notes recently, even as late as year eight or year nine, you know, everybody assumed in my year and I assumed that I would play cricket for a minimum Western Australia, if not for Australia. Um, that was just what I assumed. I've got a young son that you just met who mm. has similar thoughts. And Good luck to him. I'm reminding him that, yeah, there's only been, what, 480 baggy mm. greens in, you know, 130-odd years. So yep. it's a tough gig to get to there. I was probably good enough, but I wasn't committed enough. I didn't. I wouldn't do the thousand balls a day that a, a Langer or a, a you know a, a Steve War of my era were yep. doing at the same time. I just wasn't good enough. I had natural ability, but that was not good enough. So you're a batsman. But uh, bat, started out as a batting all rounder, okay. so a batsman who bowled a little bit, and then ended my career as a bowler who still bats a fair bit. You mentioned five hundred plus games, yep. so we won't go through every one no. of them. And I think this is a lot more focused on on business and the lessons you've learned in life as sure. a result. But what's been your best ever day in all those games of cricket on a cricket field? Yeah, look, um, uh, the historian at the Wacker recently produced a book of all of our careers. Um, so it's a tough one in when you reflect back on club cricket because uh, we don't have the record keeping we now have with mm. my cricket. Mm, which is um, outstanding. It is outstanding. So my club career only sort of picks up from the mid-2000s. My best cricket was probably, you know, I went to England and played in 98 and had a season over there and it was after that I'd come back, but I was already 30 by then, 31. So my best cricket absolutely came from 31 to 41. Um, One uh, cricketer of the year in the association that we play in, which is the biggest association outside of Perth at at 39. (laughs) Um, My best day, look, I I had lots of days. I I took... that many fivers and sixers. I did take nine for eighteen in a match one day. It's a fair uh, day. Yeah, it was a fair day. Still not as good as your old man. But no, it's pretty that's well. right. Yeah, and uh, a guy called Craig Morn, who's a mate of mine, uh, was our fast bowler on the other end. I'm just bowling the, the the seam up from the other end. So he's scaring the heck out of all the guys, and I would just come and get a lazy you know, schnick or an LB. <laughs> but I, to this day, every time I see him, I, I, I you know sort of punch him in the arm because I would have got all ten. But he put a guy in hospital that never came back to bat. Oh, so they yeah. were nine. Yeah, hit him in the head. Closure. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that was pretty handy. And then it took me. There's a fa- there's well, famous story in country circles. WA obviously clearly not famous uh, Australia wide, but mm. there's a story. The historian at the Wacker, Bill Reynolds, wrote a book a few years ago called "100 Not Out," which is a hundred years of senior country week, which is the ultimate for most of us. Once you realise you're not playing for WA. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a famous story in there where I got run out on 99. Um, and again, the same guy, this Craig Morn, uh, this Craig Morn, I shouldn't say that, Morny, up the other end batting, sent me back. Oh. I'm on 99, I've hit, clipped one to mid-wicket. His story is that, you know, there was never a run there. I've run halfway down, slipped over and still nearly made it back. But uh, uh, made 99, so I'm about 23 or 24 at the time ultimate is to make a, a senior country week 100 thinking oh well, there'll be plenty in the future 
I finally made one at the age of 40, <laughs> um, you know, so 17 years later. Lots of 80s and 90s or 70s and 80s, but it took me to 40 to finally get the ton. So that will always be high in my memory. And then the last one, probably uh, we uh, up until a few years ago, until the Big Bash kicked in, um, the Warriors used to send a team down to Bunbury at the end of the season to play against the combined sort of country team. And I got picked in that and uh, got old mate Luke Ronke out. Um, he hit me for a sixth first ball back <laughs> over my head that they're still trying to find somewhere out in the, in the Indian Ocean. And then I thought, stuff it, I'll, I'll just throw it up there again. So just slightly outside of Stump, threw it up there and he went for the bait. Big crowd, you know, in Bunbury terms, maybe 500 to 1,000 people all came to see him, but he was just, had made the Australian team. Mm. And yeah, he's hit it straight up in the air. One of our guys has got... And I got booed, right. you know, even though I was the local guy, because they'd clearly come to, it was like a um, WG Grace moment. Yeah, they'd come yeah. to see him, not me. That's what I thought as soon as you said that. Okay. So you finished school. Yes. Do you go into business with your dad then? Um, pretty much, yeah. Stepped straight out of school, toyed with the idea of uni and went, no, not for me. I, I, I eventually put myself through college not long after I left, left school, um, through a, a college, not a university, and that's where I studied accounting. But um, yeah, pretty much walked straight into dad's business, one of dad's businesses. So we owned farms, we owned an orchard, we owned a, uh, an iconic um, roadside shop at Mile Up on the main highway between... Um, um, Perth and Bunbury. Um, so yeah, we kind of, it was a pretty good job to get into because we had a wide diversity, but dad's pretty hard task market master, you know, ex-commando. Mm. So, you know, you had the eight minute morning tea and then you're, if you weren't in the ute, you, you walked to wherever we were doing fencing or whatever. Um, so very, very quickly I worked out, I was not going to be a farmer or we were mostly doing farming type activities with cattle. Um, so as a family, we we always did everything in business. My brothers worked in the business. Um, my sisters not so much, but we 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 did everything as a as a group. And we had this meeting and decided what what could we do next. You know, we just wanted to do something. So uh, we tossed up between. We felt that Harvey could position itself like Berry in South Australia as the hub of fruit juice. So we thought we'll set up a fruit juicing factory. We kind of lingered on that a bit. Somehow word got out and our neighbour across the road, we look across one day and they're putting up this giant shed and we found out they'd decided to put up a fruit factory. So we thought, well, that boat's clearly sailed. So what did we do? We set up a health shop instead. Harvey had never had a health shop. And then suddenly it dawned on the brothers and, and my dad that they still had more than they could handle with our cattle and our farms and our other business ventures. So I got lobbed into the health food shop to run it and that's where my business career started. So for three or four years, I became a, a gun on health food and understanding vitamins and minerals and selling it to ladies and guys, you know, three times my age. It was quite <laughs> interesting. I'm diagnosing problems, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was bizarre. Um, and then probably the, the real... The real moment, the moment that changed everything was, um, um, I've no doubt that here in the major cities, you know, uh, a business venture that's gone into is done with extreme care and planning in years. To, if you're investing, say, a couple of million dollars, let's say, which we kind of had at the time. Um, my dad came to my brothers. I wasn't even included in on the meeting, even though I was a partner in the business. 
and drew on the back of a door with a piece of chalk what you might call a business plan to spend our whole $2 million on a new venture called Emu Farming that had never been done anywhere commercially in the world. The West Australian government was about to issue, I think it was four licences. And so, yeah, you drop a whole business plan on the back of a wooden door <laughs> with a piece of chalk, because that was Dad, that's how he did things, and basically said, we're, we're throwing everything into this, everything. My brother Don was very cautious. My brother David was pretty keen. He was looking for something new. I didn't even get asked, but basically went along with it. And so suddenly we're selling the health shop and we're selling other things to um, start on this venture that no one had ever done anywhere in the world's history before. So how many emus, emus did you end up with? We end up with 7,000. 7,000 emus? Seven, at our height, we had just under 7,000 emus. I don't know much about emus, but that sounds like a lot of emus. Mate, I've got photos that would blow your socks away. Right. Yeah, it's just you know all on about 200 acres of land. Do you have to feed them or is it they just... Yeah, you have to feed them. Right. So the long story short is we lived the high life for a while. We were... Emus were good. Well, it was just on everybody's lips. And we're talking late 80s, so we're talking Alan Bond era. Everybody's flying high. and Especially WA. WA, yeah. We're, we're thinking we can be part of this. Um, suddenly we're grabbing the world's attention. You know, we're talking to top fashion houses in France and in Italy about emu leather and... Suddenly, the Asian market's talking to us about emu meat. What's the what's um, the, so you can there's various products that spin off from the emu. Three products right. basically was what it was set up for. Initially, it was leather. Yeah. Um, and then very shortly in, we discovered that the fashion houses of France and Italy would reject nine out of ten skins because it's the nature of emus to fight with each other, okay. and they will not. They were used to the ostrich industry that produces a perfect pelt. Huh. Uh, we would send. We it cost us tens of thousands of dollars to send skins to France and they would just ship them straight back. So now that one's got a little scratch on it. Uh, okay. So about a year or two in, we we ended up just dumping, you would not believe how many thousands of perfectly tanned skins. Wow. Just We just ended up burying them from memory. Um, so the, the second product was the meat and that ticked along pretty well until our demise, but just, just enough to cover costs basically. The, the one that we discovered that is still today the the gem of the emu is the oil, the emu oil. Huh. So you wouldn't believe how many products that you probably possibly rub on yourself from time to time that still has emu oil in it. Huh. Amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, the Aboriginals um, told us, we had a lot of um, the Aboriginal boys working for us that, you know, their, their, uh, their upbringing was brought up on emu oil. You know, eczema, uh, any sort of skin type problems or whatever. It's just, it's one of the world's hidden wonders. So what happened? Basically, the recession that we all had to have. Keating. Mr. Keating, yeah. Nice. Came along. So you mentioned about feeding. So I, by this time, I'm the company secretary for the company. We got off to a bad start. We had some, um, you could call them, I don't know if it's an old-fashioned word, but shysters who sucked us in. The, the whole drawing this thing on the back of the wooden door mm. was based on two guys who were feeding Dad this information that was clearly just lie, lie, lie. They needed money. They had nothing. We were the patsies. We were the you know country farmers who they mm. saw us coming a mile away. So we got off to a really bad start. One of them skipped with 250000 before we even started. 
Um, and we were left, these guys. Did you ever guys. catch up with them? Um, no, no. But a piece that uh, I was, again, reflecting on this with Dad, about Dad the other day. You said things that your parents leave with you. Yep. I remember the day this guy, when it became clear that he had ripped us off, um, but he had stitched us up legally in a contract. We had nowhere to go. We could fight it, but we were only going to throw bad after bad. Mm. We had to give him $250,000. And I remember the day, I'm only a young businessman, 20, 21-year-old. Dad's in his 70s by now. So, you know, um, and this, he said to this guy, Peter, he said, as, as we effectively kicked him off the farm and he was smiling all the way because he had 250G in his back pocket, he said to, the last words he said to him was, Peter... Every time you look in the mirror and have a shave each day, you remember what you did to our family. And it took me years, and then I th- a few years later, I thought, that is brilliant, Dad. Mm-hmm. He, had no, he had no more ammunition in the gun, but that dude will never be able to look in a mirror without Dad's face in front of him. Never you know, swung a punch or didn't mm-hmm. do anything aggressive that maybe other people would have done. He just sowed a, a seed in that dude's head. The, I think the last time we heard of him, he had a fully grown beard because he's clearly not shaving. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it then then it come good, but obviously... Yeah, we had a moment, again, another sliding door moment, that this area, Victoria and New South Wales, legislated for emu farming. So we started in 88 and legislate, they legislated in 92. And we made a fundamental mistake. So many business lessons I could do four hours just talking about the lessons of what we did in that venture and clearly I won't but about 92 the window suddenly opened up we're struggling financially we're still trying to establish markets in the world for a product the world didn't know about they didn't Mm. even know about the bird itself Um, and suddenly Victoria and New South Wales farmers are having to pay like we were selling 100 emus for $100,000 a load so we're suddenly carting emus my first experience in Melbourne ever in my life was to um, fly over and meet a truck driver that had brought over a hundred of our emus and we delivered them to a farmer in the Yarra Valley (laughs) and um, um, basically I remember I'm pretty sure it was my brother Don said to dad let's sell the lot let's get out now we'll get our money back and in spades but dad was fully committed to the cause he felt that you know what we were doing in the world with the products was still going to work so we, we didn't. We sold enough enough to clear our debt about 92, but then, of course, then ni- that was the recession started after that. You asked again about feed. The cost to feed 7,000 emus, I'm writing out checks, $30,000 a month to feed 7,000. They just consume <laughs> like one thing, grain, and we were trying to feed them the best grain to get the best meat and the best oil. So, yeah, 96 came around um, we had all the money we had made in 92 had well and truly gone. And we were just at that point, the wisest decision we made was, and Dad again, he knew we had to pull up stumps just before we lost everything, houses, the whole kit and caboodle. We lost all our land and our money. But I had a, I had one of those moments you kind of see on, in a, um, on documentaries from time to time, you know, the whole walk off the farm moment. Mm. I had a phone call from a, one of the big four banks, we won't mention their name, who just basically rang and said, this is a bank manager we'd been working with, had tea with, I played hockey with him. And he just rang me one day and said, Rob, I've just had a phone call from head office in Sydney and their words were, and I won't 
used the F word to F you guys off. Mm. He said, I'm just telling you now. And literally how we had a moment where that night we pretty much drove out off our farms that Dad had built and cleared, you know, from the 1950s onwards, and we never went back. So what would it have cost the family? So we, we, we lost everything as far as pretty much all our land. We retained, I think, 150 acres, but that was out of 900. You know, in today's language, I, I would anticipate, you know, at the height, when, when land's been at the best price, you know, be 10 million wee blue. So what effect did that have on those involved? Um, so Dad, none. <laughs> Well, None at all. He's been it, to Timor, yeah, so yeah, yeah. after that, I guess everything's okay. Look, I say none. My my older sisters and brothers may disagree mm. because that's a bit flippant for me to say none. I'm sure he bore something in his soul that, that hurt, mm. um, but he didn't give that outwardly. He just, I remember him saying the day the bank rang, I went in and put my arm around him and we cried together. And I remember him saying, sort of wiping a tear or two away and going, Right, what's next? That that was Dad. Did you think of it like that? Because you had a very different stage of your life. Very different. I'm right at the key moment. You know, we're talking, I'm 28. Uh, no, not quite, 27, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, I remember going back into my brother Don, who's at that point in his late 40s. So he'd been banking on this being, seeing mm. his retirement through. Mm. And we both just looked at each other and went, what do we do now? My brother David, who'd been really the driver of, of the farming side of it, he'd already made some other avenues. They weren't great for him, but he'd made some other avenues. So he did have something to sort of go off and do. But we literally had that, what do we do now moment. We're, for the first time in our lives, we didn't have anything that we could hang our hat on. You know, we suddenly going to go and just become an employee. We'd never done that before. Mm. My brother Don said, well, we got a little bit of money. His wife Deb and and uh, their son Josh they went off to came went off to England for three months. He said that's all we got left. We're just going to go. And I said to him famously, by the time you get back, I'll have something for us. And I picked up the phone and I rang a guy. It was 1996, and I said, um, you you're, you're selling computers in Bunbury. How about I do that in Harvey? We're talking 1996. Harvey didn't, you know, barely had running water or electricity at that point. Right. <laughs> you know, so, no. It sounds it. like another writing on the back of a door yeah, operation. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it, was the, it was dad repeated. And yeah. I literally went in and I rented a shop and I started selling computers. What did you know about them? Nothing. Right. Absolutely zip. What was your number yeah. one model? What were you selling at that stage? Uh, so Windows 95 had just been released. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. I, I'd been through the Windows 3.11 era. So right. I, I knew how to use them, but... What I discovered, I, I thought I was going to corner the, the business software market with MYOB. Yep. So that was mostly my thinking. Rocked into Harvey, rented a shop and had floods of people. We had this amazing opening day. I spent a squeeing on advertising in the local paper, invited everybody in, spent every last cent I had on, on food and, and drinks and stuff like that. And our total sales for that day was a mouse mat. And that was, <laughs> I'm pretty sure... It's never been clarified, but I think Mum bought it, right. and she didn't even know what a computer was. A but she just mouse, yeah. Man. So a shaky start. Before we get into that side of things, have you met your beautiful wife at this stage or not? Um, yes. Okay, so, so let's just divert. Yeah. And I should never use the word divert when we're talking about your wife. But where did you first meet the lady that was to become your wife? 
Yeah, we, we have differing um, ideals on this. We're, well, it's your story. Yeah, so. it's my story, isn't it? Yeah, um, both of us were heavily involved in church youth groups. Mm-hmm. And I re- well remember, and, th- and this is the best part about it, I remember seeing her at a church youth group event. She was Bunbury, I was Harvey, um, two of the biggest youth groups going around. And I remember seeing her at an event and thinking, hmm, that's... That's all right. Well, at yeah. what age would that have been? Um, I was um, about 19, okay. 18, 19 at the time. Okay. What was it about her that you thought, wow? Um, just, she just knocked my socks off with <laughs> how she presented herself. She just looked like a, a an amazing girl, lady. She just, you know, I guess we all have our ideals in our head and mm. she, 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 fit it. she ticked the boxes, you could say. Um, but where we officially say that we got together in Harvey in those days, we used to run an event called the Mother Daughter Banquet, which was on Mother's Day. And the idea was the men of Harvey would come and cook and serve uh, wives and daughters and any it's girls a nice idea. Um, for a night. And we would do the lot and we would suit up and, and stuff like that. And her... Um, Jackie and her mum and her sister Simone came to this particular event and I made sure I got their table <laughs> and served her and threatened to pour soup down her back at one stage when she didn't respond to something I said, I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the rest is history. Um, she went off to nursing. She's a 30-year nurse, brilliant nurse, and we um, got married in 19... We got engaged. How? Uh, yeah, I took her to our farm one of our farms, um, made up this story that we needed to go over onto this beautiful ridge that we had to check because I'd heard the sheep were potentially getting out the other side of the ridge. We didn't actually own any sheep. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had cattle but not sheep. Um, so I took her up and got right on the ridge looking back across our magnificent 300-acre property and got down on one knee and, and proposed. And the wedding itself? The wedding, yeah, magnificent, 22nd of July, so we're 30 years in a couple of weeks. Congratulations. Um, yeah, and, um, uh, you know, who picks to have a wedding in the middle of winter? It belted down with rain the whole week leading up, belted down with rain the whole week afterwards, but on the day it was just magnificent, like daylight today here in Melbourne. Just. And what did she wear? Um, uh, she wore a magnificent white wedding dress. Howie, you They're really dropped me in it. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to know a bit more about beading or neckline or something. <laughs> had a long train. Okay, there you yeah, go. Yeah, had a go. very long train. Um, I did my only gig ever in history. I sang to her at, on the on the altar. What'd you sing? Um, Three Times a Lady by um, uh, Lionel Richie. Yeah. Yeah, sang the Three Times a Lady. So only time. Uh, we had played together in a band. I play bass, mm-hmm. but, you know, typical bass guy, just stood at the back. Mm. Um She's got a glorious voice, Jackie. So I sang to her and, yeah, it was And amazing. did you and Jack go on a honeymoon? We did. We went to Coral Bay. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Travelled all the way up to Coral Bay, landed in a chalet that had a mattress that had a spring sticking up right where you don't want it. So <laughs> we put a Band-Aid on it to try and... <laughs> that's all we had to try and... And, yeah, had four weeks in Coral Bay, of all places. Not a lot to do there in those days, but... Obviously, we enjoyed ourselves. Fantastic. Okay. I'll come back to your kids. Yes. At, at some point. But at this stage, you've sold one mouse mat. Yes. Slowish stuff. Yes. Slowish. Slowish. 
So I've 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 realised very quickly on that I've I've landed on a, a gold mine that I didn't know. Um, timing was spectacular. 1996, um, no internet in Harvey at all, um, and I just timed it that every kid suddenly was pestering mum and dad for a PC hmm. at home. So suddenly I've got all these people coming in not interested in the slightest in accounting software, which is what I wanted to sell and then value add by teaching them how to use it, but they had nothing to put it on, is what I soon discovered. I see. So suddenly I've got all these mums and dads coming in saying, can you build us a computer? Because it was back in the day where we built computers, they yeah. didn't come pre-made. Okay. And I'm like, yeah. So I start taking orders. I, I, I Honestly, in the end, I think we sold... I can't remember how many thousands of computers, huh. but it was in a little town like Harvey, 3,000 people. It's crazy. So everyone was buying their Yeah, everybody computer. was buying a computer and they, you know, typical to a community like Harvey, let's buy it from the local guy. Um, you know, so rocking in and I had this moment, uh, another sliding doors moment where I remember it was about three weeks in and I'd taken a stack of orders for computers that I had no idea. I knew how to source the parts, but I didn't know how to build them. I remember going home. We lived, um, after we got married, Jackie and I moved to Binningup, which is uh, a beach resort um, just um, north of Bunbury. And, you know, high, idyllic place to live. Magnificent. You'd love it. Right on the water. Great surf. Not mm. that I'm into surfing. Um, and I remember going home this one night and uh, we at this stage, we just kind of had our second child of, of five. And um, Jackie went off to bed and we put the two bubs to bed, two, two young ones to bed. I went out on the back patio with a beer and, and I don't even drink. I don't know why I had one. And I bawled my eyes out. Right. I absolutely just bawled my eyes out. I thought, now I've become the shyster who ripped us off off eight years ago because I'm selling things to people that I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. Next day I went to work. It was a wet day. That night I'd take, I took two more orders. I think it was that day. A guy, I'd shut up. It was late. It was about seven o'clock. A guy, suddenly I heard this banging on the door. I'd already locked it. I went out and this weedy looking guy says to me, mate, do you mind if I come in? I said, yeah, come on in. He goes, look, I need to buy a computer for my kids. I'm thinking, yeah, here we go. Another one that I'm going to sell that I can't build. He goes, but there's a kicker. He says, I have no money, none at all. The kids desperately need one. But he said, I know how to build computers. <laughs> Is there any danger that you might be able to give me an after-hours job? He worked at a local um, abattoir as their IT guy back in... Jeez. He said, I'll come every day after work. Do you have computers you need built? I went... Can you start now? And that for the next five years, six years, he came every night. He would finish at five o'clock and he would come and I would have orders of computers and he'd build them for me. Wow. And it was just, you know, God heard my prayer yeah. because I was, I was at breaking point again. So you mentioned in that part of that story that uh, you're on the back deck and there was two kids at home. Yes. When did you first find out you're going to become a father? Do you remember it? Yeah, um, 1993 was when we had our first, Nathan. Um, whoo, where, oh, Jackie's going to kill me now because I don't, she remembers those sort of things down to the second, but. Uh, oh, do you remember Nathan? Oh, being, being born? born, yeah, absolutely. Were you remember. There? Yeah, definitely was there. Um, it, um, it was 
um, just one of those amazing moments. Although I, I don't think, and and uh, I don't think um, it's unfair to say I wasn't one of those dads who probably you know leapt out of my skin um, the second he was born mm. and was immediately bonded. But having said that, I, I was my I was in in love straight away with with having Nathan. I remember the thing I remember clearest is is um, us when we took him home and put him in his little cot for the first time and he cranked up um, sitting in a corner this is the moment I most remember thinking and so it begins mm. Mm. and best part of 15 years later it, it finally we saw some some daylight we Jackie and I say the same thing we had sadly we had the most amazing boys that, on the planet you know every parent's proud of their kids but mm. we are so proud of our kids but we have no recollection of the 1990s at all it's just a blur other than the business dramas that we went through so i've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of your uh young fellows here yeah. one a hawthorne fan who yeah. i thought was a very fine upstanding citizen <laughs> so how many children do you have um we've got four living and yep. we had we lost our son lachlan in 1999 do you want to yeah. talk about that or not um yeah i I, th I think it would be right for me to do that because one it was it was something that defined me as a person that's when i finally i think properly grew up and understood life mm -hmm. um yeah so we had nathan in 93 brendan in 96 um both horrific sleepers allergies all sorts of issues but just beautiful kids beautiful beautiful kids um still are um and then yeah i went off to England in 98, had a season of cricket in, um, in Yorkshire, um, and we did a tour, Jackie and I, of Ireland, and not long after that, we found out we were pregnant, so we're not quite sure if it was Ireland or thereabouts, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, basically, uh, Jackie carried Lachlan for the best part of the full term, 36 weeks. Um, I came home, I was still selling computers at that stage, 99. Uh, came home um, one night and, you know, we knew it was getting close um, for her to give, you know, could be any time, basically. Mm. And she said to me, I haven't felt bub move for a while. And I just did the whole, you know, upbeat. No, I'm sure it's all good. You know, you yourself have told me that, you know, towards the end, sometimes the baby doesn't move as much, as uh, isn't as active, and that's a sign. So she sort of went, yeah, okay. I, I I went off to sleep. She never slept all night. Kept wanting him to move, and he didn't. So next morning, she Jackie was, you know, really concerned. So she got up and went off into Bunbury to the doctors. Uh, I said I'd stay home from work and look after the the two young ones. And um, yeah, then about I I can't remember the exact time, but sort of mid morning, I got the phone call that you just no parent wants, no ever. And um, got the phone call to say, you better come in here. We, we cannot detect a heartbeat. Um, so I got in there around lunchtime-ish. And then, Howie, I watched my beautiful, amazing wife do the bravest thing I've ever seen in my life. She went through the best part of seven hours full labour. Um, and with the doctors telling us more than likely, couldn't give us 100% that she was going to deliver a stillborn baby that was perfect we kept believing not we kept believing that he would breathe and that everything would be okay 
Oh, she had an allergic reaction to some drugs I gave her. It was just horrible. But she, she refused to do anything other than to give birth the natural way. And, uh, yeah, uh, stormy, horrible night. It's just one of those days that you just is etched in your memory. She delivered him and he came out how he, he was uh, pee in the same pot as the three boys, the two that we already had at that stage. He was perfect in every shape possible. Go- beautiful baby. Just didn't, didn't breathe. And, um, yeah, for the next um, sort of 10 or 15 minutes, I, I remember at one point they took Jack away to do something with her and they gave Lachlan to me in my arms and I have never had a spiritual experience like I had in that 10 minutes. I absolutely, it was thunder. It was one of the worst storms we'd had in Bunbury for years that night. So it's just banging and crashing outside the hospital. He was the first um, baby to be born in a brand new hospital that we had, stillborn. And um, <coughs> yeah, I was left I, I, I can't remember if there was anyone around, but I'm sure there wasn't. It was just Lachlan and I, and I'm bawling my eyes out, and I just had this sense. I had this clear how he, I, people are going to think I'm nuts, but I had this clear minute where I audibly heard him say, it's all going to be okay, Dad. I heard him say it, Howie. I, I'm, I might be nuts, but I heard him say it. And um, that just stays with me now forever. And, um, yeah, and so, yeah, one of the toughest gigs on the planet started after that. It just all went, um, I watched my amazing wife just literally go to hell and back for probably the next couple of years. We dealt with, you know, we had the funeral, you know, here I am, we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of a child and I'm walking down the same aisle that we'd been married in 10 years earlier with a white coffin in my arms. Um, and then, yeah, the next couple of years were just, and well, beyond that, you know, we still, we still to this day grieve his loss, but we celebrate his birth also. We've dealt with the ignorance of people going, you know, it was, well, he was still born, you know, he didn't actually Mm. live. Well, he did. He lived for nine months inside my wife's belly. Mm. And, um, to this day, we include him in everything. We've got five sons, Howie. Yeah, four. So, two questions about your sons. We'll deal with a hard one first. What did you learn about loss and what did you learn going through that together? Um, I learned some pretty harsh lessons because I went off on a... I, 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 made the, I made what I now know to be a wrong call. Jackie was... I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've read the Bible or whatever, but uh, Old Testament, you know, ready to tear her clothes. She was beyond consoling most days. She would put on a brave front at times, but then spend literally days just locked in the room, just in, 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 a, in a form of um, sadness that just doesn't, there's no words to explain it. Mm. It's just, you know, if you do understand biblical times, Job type, Mm-hmm. times you know that's how how much grief she was in i was hurting i was hurting but i suddenly the man thing in my head snapped in and i went i have to be the brave front to all this 
So I threw myself back into my work harder than I ever had before. And I basically thought if, if the public see me being strong and okay with this, then it's all going to be okay. Mm. But Jackie needed, needed more than that. Well, not more than that. She needed just me. And, and I, I, I clearly, I, I made a wrong call and I regret it. So on the positive, uh, five sons. Yes. Four still with you. Yes. What does it mean to you to be a father now? Yeah. Oh, look, to, to sit around our table now, the two I'm at, two oldest ones are married now. One married. Uh, so I've met the two younger ones. You, you seem like two, standing young. Yeah, man. yeah, Looked they me are. In the eye, immediately shook my hand. All those things you want your kids to do up to when they grow up. So congratulations on that. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, yeah, look, we um, we just now. Well, there's an ad on TV that that epitomises this. This lady goes, oh, you know, you might want this or you might want this, but all I want is this, and it's her sitting around. She's got a huge family sitting around. They're having a meal. Mm-hmm. You know, what better? To, how better does that get? And that's what we have now, right now. You know, we just sit, and uh, our oldest son married a, a a girl who comes from Swiss origins and uh, is a most beautiful daughter-in-law, Jazzy. She's gorgeous. Um, and our second son, Brendan, just recently married a, a lady, a girl who, lady, daughter-in-law, who's uh, got French origin, so we've suddenly become very European <laughs> for a people from, you know, Southwest WA. Oh, you've got the Italian sort of area yeah. there as well. <laughs> She's a, uh, a, um, on the fast track as a journalist with the West Australian and doing really well. Um, so, yeah, we just sit around and we just love every moment of life now with the four boys and our two daughter-in-laws um but we always have a seat for Lachlan you know he's he's always there too and we don't write a card or write anything without referencing Lockie because mm-hmm. to us every year we go out and celebrate his birth and his death um and have the full-on you know cakes and balloons every year for night you know it's been 20 years this year um so yeah we're just exceedingly proud of our boys they're all just exceptional people back to the computer shop yep going well yep you've got old mate from the abattoir yep making the computers that was well beyond your technical capability <laughs> yes um it obviously became very successful it did and what it did it, it created the avenue um so there's, there's a saying that goes something along the lines of um you know you need to uh, the future is about the beauty of living your own dream. <laughs> and um, I I had this dream in 96 when it all went pear-shaped with the Emu Farm of becoming, I, I, I still call it to this day, I wanted to become Myob Central. I discovered MYB as a product in the early 90s when version one uh, called Best Books. Yep. So one of the pioneers, I guess, I found my floppy disks the other day <laughs> that I used to put in my Windows 3.11 machine <laughs> to get it to work. That um, someone else built for you. Yeah, that someone <laughs> else built for me. And um, my dream, Howie, was to uh, educate people in bookkeeping. I'd put myself through college to teach myself accounting and about 1992 th- or 91 thought, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody is still going to do this stuff by pencil and paper. Mm. So I guess to a degree, had a vision, had a dream, 
and I dreamt of having my own training center teach educating people in how to use accounting software I could just see it was going to happen in 96 I thought bang I've got it it took me another well it took to a till a little thing called the GST came in so uh, 99 we're still dealing with the loss of Lockie uh, the G GST came in on the 30th of June 2000 I had I think at that point I quote 20 clients who used MYOB that I'd taught how to use it and 24 hours later I had 220 clients because mm. a lot of people have forgotten when the GST came in the government gave every business in Australia $250 voucher uh, to go out and buy some accounting software uh, and nice so I just literally had these people. I had a second computer shop by now in Australind, and people were just coming in and dropping literally like cash on my desk. They were vouchers saying, what What do we buy? So I'd sell them a copy of MYOB, and then they'd go, how do we use it? Mm. So within literally within a few months, I basically knew that I had to sell the computer shops, and we kind of did over the next year or so, and then eventually built the custom-built training centre that had been in my head 10 years earlier. And long story short, we estimate recently I've trained over 10,000 people in, in the southwest of WA and now beyond, even around Australia. And um, you are the golden child for MYOB. It's funny you say that. There's a couple of consultants in Perth who call me that. Mm. Yeah, they're there? not my words, but right. they call me the golden child. There's a consultant in Perth who's right. always called me the golden child. So, uh, yeah, Tim Reid and I are good mates. Very good mates, but I don't, I don't think I've necessarily got that golden child <laughs> ring about me, maybe. Um, but certainly I've been well looked after and and the company itself, MYB, even though I don't work for them, um, they've done nothing but amazing things for me and have defined so much of what I still do today. And there's various shoot-offs, shall we call yeah. it? Spin-offs of spin -offs. the business? Shoot yeah. not the right word. Spin-offs. Yeah. So, so, so where are you today? Well, where I'm at today is is different in the last 18 months okay. post-heart attack. So where I got to, yep. uh, circa six months out from my heart attack, um, was I had built an empire that was getting way beyond me. So basically the, the offshoot of training people in uh, accounting software was many would then say, look, great training Rob we think you're amazing but we still aren't up for this caper mm. do you have a girl who could come and do it for us bookkeeper okay so suddenly I'm just employing people Howie to my eternal shame my brother and I at this stage the brother who'd gone away to England, England. who'd okay. nothing to do came back said we're doing computers he went we're doing what <laughs> we've gone from emus to computers so Don and I have been in business ever since then so that's the best part of 25 years uh, he suddenly learned how to do computer stuff and became, as only my brother Don can do, an absolute gun at it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we, were, we just started employing people and we couldn't keep up. You know, we would just take on more work and we're just employing more people. To, to our eternal shame, both of us hang our head. There was a moment we actually employed a lady who worked for us for three months. She could walk in here right now and we don't have a clue who she is. Mm. You know, And I think that was about the point we realised we were losing the plot. We were just growing at such a rapid rate and the stresses that go with that are culpable, are tangible. Um, some people are geared to do that. Clearly we're not. 
Um, so we reached a tipping point and without saying it was the ultimate cause of my heart attack, it was definitely a factor in it. So to answer your question, where we are now is I've pretty much done what every business coach on the planet would tell you is anti what you normally do. I wound back a business. I, I basically dismantled a business that we'd spent. My, my brother Don had spent best part of 20 odd years building mm. and doing all the business coach, you know, you've got to do this to succeed and you, you know, got to show leadership and all that sort of stuff. I'm now back to how I started in in 1996 me myself and an amazing PA called Joe who runs my life for me and uh, that's it and this is probably because you're in some way lucky to be here Howie that's a complete understatement is it <laughs> yeah a complete mm-hmm. understatement there's no way I should be here um, but happened? I am but by the grace of God um, so uh, the story goes that I'd just come back from, I got selected, I, I finally reached my dream in cricket representing my state, got picked in the West Australian over 50s, um, went to um, Sydney and uh, we smashed it out, we won the, the national championships, I took a four for in the final, I'm on, I'm on top of the world, so never, never smoked a cigarette in my life, rarely drink other than the one drink I had when I cried and <laughs> you know didn't know what I was going to do with computers. Um, fit, healthy, yeah, a few blood pressure issues which I was getting under control, but um, yeah, in a great space, you know. And um, came back from Sydney. I'm playing then on the Saturday in a local game in Bunbury. Uh, went out and smashed a quick 50. Uh, very humid day. Came off the ground, pretty ticked off. I didn't actually, I think I made 48, so I was pretty ticked off not getting to raise the bat for a 50. Mm came off went into the change rooms took all my stuff off hot sweaty came out i'm just having a drink with a mate a work colleague of mine peter shine and we were talking he was chastising me for the poor shot i'd paid to get out and i just suddenly felt this massive pain up my left arm like just like a major electric shot my first thought was the boys you know when they're ready waiting to go out the bat just hit a few balls around with somebody chucking them at them I thought one had hit and hit me in the elbow. Okay. Thought, what's this? Didn't know what was going on. Didn't say anything to Peter. Just got up quietly. I thought, oh, maybe I hurt myself while I was batting. Went into the change rooms. I had some Nurofen in my bag um, and thought, I'll just take some Nurofen. As I walked into the change rooms, no one else in there. It was like suddenly somebody got a concrete truck and backed it up and just parked it on my chest. The pain... Continued up my arm and just, I can't explain the the heaviness that descended upon me. I stood there probably for a second. I had this massive, I thought I was going to throw up. I had nausea. Um, and I just, something twigged in me. Jackie um, instructs me and the boys on medical stuff as a very experienced nurse. And I think something in my head from something she'd said went, mate, you're having a heart attack and, a, and the big one. So then the bizarre things happened after that. So first bizarre thing, something in my head, and I didn't remember this, Howie, until about two or three days later afterwards as I lay in my hospital bed, I neatly then packed up my cricket bag. like As all guys do when you go into the change rooms, I just spread everything everywhere mm. to try and dry it out or whatever. 
I'm having this mate, what turned out to be what they call a widow maker heart attack. Normally you die immediately. And something in my brain went, don't die as a messy shit. <laughs> you know, so I've packed up my cricket bag perfectly. I've then literally crawled out to where the playing group was and stood over my friend Peter. And I just said, Peter, I think I'm in big trouble here. And he looked up at me and he told me later, he said, oh, I was a colour he's never seen before. And at that point I collapsed into a chair and I described this, I got to speak at an event last year in, here in Melbourne at High Sense Arena to a crowd of about a thousand. I said it became like, if you've if you lived in my era, one of those Monty Python movies where everybody suddenly, I can remember, just were running around all over the place, um, but nobody was actually doing anything. Mm. Everybody was panicking. I, I know now that they were trying to get hold of triple zero and got diverted to the wrong service. Um, it just was cut, and in the meantime, I'm just laying there, and I, you know, I was dying. I, I, and so, with the type of heart attack I had, every minute becomes essential. It's called the widowmaker heart attack, and if you do some research, they say you've got about 45 minutes to get treatment at best, or else you're not going to make it. So the clock's ticking, and I'm laying there dying. Bizarre thing number two. I remember somebody yelling, "Anyone know any?" first aid or whatever and one of my teammates just appears in my face he goes Robbie Robbie I did a first aid course recently I'm thinking oh here's my angel he's going to save my life he's like you know he says you know here drink some water and and whatnot and he's talking to me and next minute the game's still going on out in the middle and next minute there's ah! and the guy had replaced me gets out the guy who's in my face my teammate sort of stops looks around I look down he's got the pads on oh. He looks at me and goes, I'm really sorry, Robbie, but I'm next in. Oh, and he, come on. <laughs> and, he, and he leaves me. I mean, that's dedication to the team, surely. You've got to give him kudos for that. You've yeah. got to look after your teammates yeah. as well, though, thought at some point. So, um, yeah, from there, Peter, my mate, said, get him in my car. We're probably 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes from the regional hospital in, in, in Bunbury. And he just took off like a bat out of hell. And and um, I don't remember most of the trip. He, I was in massive pain. Um, Howie, I had a moment. I had a moment. There's a round, big roundabout just outside of Bunbury. To go into Bunbury, you've got to go around this. It's mm. called the Eel Up Roundabout. Mm. And it's about the only recollection. And I hope I won't freak you out. But um, I remember dying at that moment and going... And I went. <laughs> Where to? I experienced something that I cannot, I have struggled. I have spent the last 18 months trying to put into words what happened to me in those moments. Um, I say the same thing over and over again. And that is, if you don't believe there is a next, you need to talk to me at greater length because I now understand what is the next. So I, I came into this understanding that I was dying. Peter tells me at that point I was mumbling things like, tell Jackie and the boys I love them. I don't remember that. Um, Howie, I had the most amazing sense of peace. I know you sign off on all your things with peace and love. Yeah. Um, way beyond this podcast, can I tell you about peace? It is. It was a peace that goes beyond any understanding. And... This sounds macabre and it's a difficult conversation for me to have with Jackie and the boys around. But now I'm just in waiting. 
I, don't, I have no desire to die, but I know, I know what's next. And so, I have understood it, even though I can't properly put it into words. Try. I just came into a revelation that for a start, so I have a, I have a very strong um, Christian upbringing through Sunday school. Mm-hmm. My mum was taught more kids Sunday school, I think, than just about anyone on this planet. So I got brought up in a, in a traditional church. I'm not a Bible bashing. I'm not going to hit you over the head. My faith is my faith. Your faith needs to be your faith. Mm. Um, I would love for your faith to be mine, but I don't know. That's not my place to ask you. But um, I, so I had an understanding, but like many uh, a doubting Christian, I'd always thought, what if I've just got it all wrong? Mm. What have I got? What if I've got this completely wrong? The whole, you know, our soul transcends into heaven's scenario. I felt my soul transcending. I felt, I felt a peace. So I'm in the most massive pain. Oh, oh no, it's wrong of me to say the most massive pain. I'm sure women would bash me on the head. Labour is clearly one of the mm. most uh, massive pains. But I'm having the the mother of all heart attacks, and yet two emotions I didn't feel at that point were fear, or pain both of those completely disappeared the main one being fear i'm dying i'm i'm gone but i just had this revelation and this understanding come into me of what was about to unfold next and that's the best i can do to under, to try and explain it my son uh, brendan um who is an amazing uh he just reads books, writes stuff, amazing stuff. He He's going to grab me when we get back from this trip and sit down and we're going to try and flesh out as best we can in words because I just, I've tried and I've tried to explain what I felt and understood and I just can't even now properly get it out. So we're going to we're gonna have a crack at that. I look forward to reading it. Yeah, we, uh, he wants to write the story uh, as, as a book. So, yeah. But um, mm. you're still still here, so but, someone sorted the situation out. Yeah, I, I have no doubt about who that someone is now. So all all, all my uh, doubts about what I'd learnt about um, the next, the the process that will happen when we die, I have no doubts at all now, none at all. So I I don't know if many people can say this, but I have zero fear of death now. Gee, that must be comforting. Oh, it is. It's um, it's it's such a it's 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 liberating howie it's liberating to know that your future is assured and so the word i get now the word i totally get 100 percent get is the word eternity i get it now i i used to struggle with understanding Mm. it in sunday school and in church but now i get it i totally get the whole eternity thing and um so what what we're doing here is just a, a moment of a, a vapor a moment you know we talk about our consciousness our our brain and our heart constantly there's you listen you know since my heart attack everybody uses the word heart when they're talking they don't even know they're using it mm. you know you guys talking about you know stuff on the big bash mm. and and on triple m listening to the footy you know you're using the word heart probably mm. more than you know I've transcended it from that. I now use the word soul. I totally get the love and peace thing that you sign off on, Howie, on the mm. bottom of your emails. Like you wouldn't believe. 
And bizarrely, my dad also had a similar revelation just before he died. We got a phone, I got a phone call to say, Dad needs to see you, went in and he'd had this moment. He was sitting in this, um, in his, on his deathbed, what turned out to be his deathbed. We thought he was going to go for quite a while longer. And Dad, you know, soldier, no, no, um, you know, sort of airs and graces about him, just a tough man. As I walked in, he's in tears. He goes, Rob, I had this moment, the ho- everyone, no one in the room, he said, I, was, I thought I was asleep, but I wasn't. I was fully awake. He said, this mist came in and, and surrounded me in my, ho- in my hotel room, my hospital room. And he said, suddenly, he said, I, I could see colours, he said, that don't exist on this planet. He said, I could see things that just are, are beyond description. And I, I didn't go to that length with my revelation, but... To see my dad talk about that, he didn't talk, you know, the tough, mm. tough man, Howie, tough ex-SAS soldier, commando, that wasn't, he wasn't making it up. He'd had, clearly had had an experience that goes beyond, transcends beyond what we understand. And I had a, had a glimmer of it too, just outside the up roundabout in Bunbury. So one final question for you on this, and then I think we'll get to today. And yes. I'll ask you a few more esoteric questions before we're done. Does that comfort you with Lachlan? Yeah. Oh, mate, that's a great, that's a brilliant question. Absolutely it does. So I had been comforted for years in while I struggled through business in the 2000s and, and the 2010s after Lachlan died. Um, but he would, his words that I audibly heard, heard him say, and I'm sure those listening must be getting a whole different understanding of Rob Marshall right now because mm, I'm, I'm saying stuff that I've, in some cases, I've never told anyone other than my closest friends or family. Um, he gave me strength by the words I audibly heard him say, it's all going to be okay, Dad. And then when I had this moment, this event, while I'm dying at the Elap roundabout, um, where it became even clearer what that meant. So I just thought it meant, you know, don't grieve for me too much. But now I understand that he is in a place that I too will be, and hopefully we all will be, that transcends anything that we have here and feel here and struggle with and have all those moments where we just go, is this worth it? Um, I know now it is worth it. Live a good life, Howie. I'm not saying this to you live a good life peace and love Howie mm-hmm. what you write on the bottom mm-hmm. you, you don't know how insightful that is mm-hmm. it is all about peace and love um, and the the revelation and, and Lockie has helped me with this there is a, a proverb that says the wisest thing a man can do is seek wisdom and that's where I'm at now I, I in everything I do in everything I try to uh, everything I approach I do from a degree of, of wisdom and understanding that you have a soul like me. The person I bought the coffee off earlier has a soul like me and I need to be wise enough to understand you and understand the dude I'm buying the coffee off even though probably from today, Howie, I won't hmm. get to spend a lot of time with you um, because we're in the moment now, you and I, and I need to be wise to understand that 
you have an amazing soul and I need to honour that. It's a great it's a great view and you've had some amazing experiences and experiences a lot of us are never here to talk about obviously if this is what happens and i've enjoyed hearing your story immensely um because you have had so many wonderful experiences good and bad i'll ask you some questions rob not planned they're sort of a bit more esoteric as i said earlier on sometimes they're hard to answer yeah just whatever pops into your head. Sure. That we, I spoke to you before we started this about just try and speak from your heart, which sure. I didn't need to tell you in <laughs> retrospect because you've been fantastic doing that and hearts come up the whole way through it. From your experiences to this point, what do you think the key to success is? These don't need to be long answers, but, but what makes someone successful, do you reckon? Yeah, that, that was uh, almost the topic of what I spoke of at Hisense last year. Um, so... MYB have a have a, a, a catch cry, a logo, a, a byline, whatever yep. you call catch it. That's, yeah, catchphrase. That's what I'm looking for. That says success is personal. Um, so, for me, success for the best part of up until my heart attack was about climbing a mountain mm-hmm. or, or reaching the top of the mountain, and it was at whatever whatever it took to get there. Now, amazingly, and this is we uh, this is what we love about the Howie Games. You you can go off on a tangent, mm. can't you? Of course. Can. Um, I'm listening to Mick Malthouse being interviewed by Matt Clinch, is it? Yep. I think from the ABC last week while I'm driving around in Bunbury, and Matt Clinch asked him the same question you just asked me. And uh, you know, Mick, across your amazing career, you where's the where's the mountaintop moment? When did it happen? And to my eternal sadness, and I'll clearly never get a chance to talk to Mick but I'll, I wish I could his response were I never found it Matt I've never found it and mm. I'm a year into retirement knowing now that I'll never go back I won premierships with West Coast I won you know premierships with Collingwood I you know I won a premiership as a player and I now know I'm still looking for it and I don't know I'll be honest his, his exact words were I'll be honest I, I, I don't know where to look anymore and I I just I grieved when I heard that from mm. somebody as amazing as him because I can assure him he'll never listen to this but I can assure him you can find a mountaintop but it has absolutely nothing to do with business sport or anything it's a mountaintop that I understood outside the Elup roundabout <laughs> on the 9th of December 2017 Okay so then happiness Happiness is is absolutely key to everything, you know, um, and happiness comes from wisdom. So all roads keep leading back to wisdom is what I've learnt, Howie, from, you know, success. So the the success story again, the catch cry, success is personal. Find the person before you find the success. Don't seek the success above the person themselves. Find yourself, find your own soul understand yourself and understand where you will find success from within not from without um, is is what I have discovered so all of the accolades that I've received in my career I still um, am happy to if somebody asks me tell them about Australian inaugural Australian partner of the year for NYB you know inaugural hall of fame inductee you know named as a wacker country legend recently at an event in Perth for cricket, uh, one of only nine in 110 years. So I, 
I think I'm okay to celebrate them and mm. I'd encourage anybody to celebrate their achievements. Um, but they're not what define me. They're not what defines the success in me now. But I've only understood that post the 9th of December 2017. <laughs> that bloody roundabout. Yeah, that bloody roundabout, yeah. Okay, so um, your beautiful wife, you've been married 30 years. Yes. What is the key... Because it sounds like to me you got off to a shaky start with the whole ironing and cooking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think the key to a successful long-term relationship is? Um, the key is that um, you just got to keep working at it. You got to keep working at it, and even still, now you know we have the the moments in the past that I mentioned before that I have regrets about that crop up from time to time. But we we've come into again that understanding of who each other is and it's when you do that when you have that revelation of who each of you are in a relationship i think that's the moment when you come into some acceptance you know an acceptance space i think that's when you really start to move more forward and that takes a lot of hard work in any relationship and you know Sadly, it's part of society now that you know our thirty years is is a bit of a gig now. Mm. You know, it's it's it was commonplace a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, but not now. Um, so, I'm I'm proud of the fact that we've been able to keep it together. Clearly, Jackie deserves gold medals because I made decisions that I thought were the right decisions with the right intentions, um, but they weren't necessarily the right call at the time, especially after Lockie died. Um, and I will be, here it is again, that word, eternally grateful, and my partner is my soul partner, because I understand soul now more than I ever did before. So, If we were to do this in another 10 years, how old are you now, Rob? Uh, just turned 52. Okay, so 52 to 62. Yes. What would you like? Um, well, one of the other decisions, so the, the, the aftermath of the heart attack was why. There was a lot of why. Uh, can I quickly tangent again? So uh, go in. So the story, the moral of the story with the widow maker is, if it, I pray it never happens to you, Howie, but you've got to get to the hospital quick and you'll probably live. So they fixed me five stents, three angioplasties, world record for Bunbury apparently, <laughs> go up through your arm into your heart. Couldn't believe what they found. Everyone has one major artery called the LAD going into their heart. I've got three of them. A hmm. uh, nurse told me in 25 years of nursing she'd never seen anything like it. So I've got a miracle of a heart. It's just a pure miracle. Uh, so the miracles just kept coming with why I'm still alive. Um, but um, uh, beyond that, four days after that, the doctor goes, or three days later, he goes, you can go home now. You're going to have a lot of recovering, but you can go home the last test at the WACA ever, the Ashes test, was starting on the Thursday. I've cheekily gone, I'm supposed to be sitting in the Black Swan room with Christina Matthews and the crew. Any chance? Jackie's just jumped in with no chance at all. <laughs> he's gone, you betcha. Turns out he's a bit of a fan. He goes, you've got to get back into life. You can't drive for a month. Looked at Jackie, can you take him up? She reluctantly takes me up. Uh, a lady called Joe Davy, a general one of the general managers at the Wacker, meets me at the um, at gate two, lines back to Northbridge for the last Ashes test ever at the Wacker, mm. uh, ushers me through up the lift into um, the Black Swan room, 
Christina Matthews meets me at the door, Rob, we've heard what's happened. You know, we know you are not going out of our sight. I'm looking like horrible. I'm, I'm four days after the mother of all heart attacks. Mm. She goes, you're going to sit in my chair because we're not letting you. She plonks me down and I'm next to John Howard, my <laughs> all-time greatest political hero. And him and I talked heart attacks for the next, because apparently he had one on a golf course that the media haven't grabbed hold of, so wow. I've just broken the story mm. a few years ago. So mm. amazing. So, yeah, one minute I'm transcending, and the next minute I'm sitting next to our former PM and having a, a, a good chat with well, him. One of the great cricket lovers of all time. So the next 10? The next 10. The next 10. So I made a decision in post-heart attack that I couldn't go back to the place I'd been. So made a decision. I only work four days a week now, Howie. Uh, wound back the business. Um, have, like I said, an amazing PA, Joe, that now I don't breathe unless she tells me to. She, I don't do all the things. So the aftermath was that I just say yes, had said yes to everybody, working 16, 17-hour days every day. So they're gone. Um, they had 30 years of doing that. Um, she monitors me like a hawk. Um, and so it was said over tea last night with our friends Darren, the West Coast supporter, and my other best mate who's we've grown up together in, in, um, um, in uh, from high school days, Greg Gardner, who's a, the real estate guru of Bunbury. He was with us last night. He's a Hawk supporter. You would like Greggy. Good He's on you, Greggy yeah. boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, the comment was made, you're not already starting to slip into retirement, are you? And I went, yep. I'm going to just slowly work towards that. I don't think I'll ever stop working, but I'm on the scale down. So, yeah, 10 years' time, I'm hoping, how if we had this conversation, it'd be, you know, I'm doing maybe one or two days a week and just loving life like I am right now. Four days of work, four-day week is good. Long weekend every weekend. Have Friday off every weekend. Gives me opportunity to do all my cricket stuff. There's uh, wacker stuff and mm -hmm. local cricket stuff and that. So I'm uh, I'm in a good space, mate. I'm in a really, really good space. Um, Which is fantastic. I have one final question for you. I think we've covered most things here. Yep. Hopefully you feel that. If Jackie and your five boys yep. were sitting here now and your two daughter-in-laws um, and your greater family and you wanted to tell them, I don't know whether you do this frequently or not, some do, some don't, you wanted to tell them how you feel about them, Yeah. which is probably the hardest question of all, Yeah. what would you say to them? And, and yeah, I'm glad you've asked me that because I probably don't do that enough. Um, I don't think any of us do. No, no. Why is that? I don't know, but I, that's what everybody says. Yeah, I don't get that bit, but, well, I don't get that I don't do it more because mm. I feel it and, you know, and understand it. So describe your feelings. Uh, just pure joy, just pure joy of, of the wife that has, has stood alongside me for 30 years now and hopefully, in her words, will be at least another 30. Um, of, of, of four boys and a, and a deceased son that just bring me nothing but joy every day when I see them and talk to them and what they're achieving and what they're doing is just pure joy for me. My daughter-in-law is the same. I'm just so proud of, of Jazzy and uh, and Joe. Um, I love and my extended family as well, my brothers and sisters that are still alive. You know, we still are so close together. We don't commune as much as we used to, but um, I, I, you know, I love every opportunity I get to catch up with my two older sisters and my, my two older brothers. 
so many amazing memories and what we went through with mum in particular in recent times. Um, and, yeah, look, uh, what would I say to them mm-hmm. if they were sitting right here? Um, there is, a, there is a, a singer that they know that I have listened to since the 1980s. He was the inspiration for Bob Dylan. Check him out, How He's a guy called Larry Norman. Larry Norman. Larry Norman. Write that one down. Okay. He, Bob Dylan once said he was the inspiration, so through the 70s and 80s. And he wrote a song. He wrote a song. I listen to all his albums still to this day constantly. He wrote a song that says the words, um, I've searched all around the world to find a grain of truth. I opened the mouth of love and I found a wisdom tooth. <laughs> and that's where I'm at. I understand the opening of 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 the search for truth and I couldn't find it and then I found wisdom and with wisdom came love and that's the love that I have for my family my my pack <laughs> we've got a border collie now so she thinks she's part of the <laughs> pack Tilly um it knows no bounds Howie are we done I think so. I think so. I'd be horrified if I've missed anything out. I shouldn't be looking at notes because I haven't looked at them once. Which and that's has been the, beauty. the best part about it. That's the beauty of, of, of the Howie games, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> mate, congratulations on what you do. Thanks. Um, probably my last thing that I'd love to say mm-hmm. for those who do get hold of this and have a listen is... Um, I learnt, especially in the aftermath of the heart attack and the opportunities I've had to do some public speaking, is the outpouring of emotion when you get off stage and people coming up, and, and especially in, in the communities I work, I'm in, in cricket and, and with MYAB and the bookkeeping world, you know, I'm real, I guess. I'm not some guy they've flown in from America to speak or whatever. They know me, stuff like that. What I've learned, Howie, and this is why your show, your um, podcast just exceeds no bounds, is that every person on this planet has a story to tell. And my encouragement would be, whether it's with uh, the amazing Mark Howard or somebody, (laughs) even if it's just your cat, (laughs) tell your story. Tell your story. It's it's liberating to tell your story. I didn't come, you know, Jackie uh, arranged this for me. I didn't come here to... To do something that will be a, uh, you know, an epitaph or anything like that, I came here because it's just another opportunity for for me to tell my story, and I hope that somebody will somewhere benefit from that. I believe everybody's story has a benefit to someone else. I really do. Did you enjoy it, mate? I have loved every Great. second of this. Great. Good on you, Rob. Thank Thanks. you very much. Cheers. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. try.